as we continue through our series called Retell, going back through familiar Old Testament stories and bringing them up in the light of the truth of the New Testament and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to be this morning in the book of Job. I actually was, um, I hope they don't mind, uh, I won't say their names, but I was on my way back to church this morning after picking up um, a couple of my daughters, um, 50% of them, two out of four, um, and uh, I was on my way back to church, and one of them asked what we were preaching on today, what my passage was, and I said, the book of Job, and they said, the whole book? I say, yeah. I said, how long is it? I said, 42 chapters. Um, now, if you know me at all, I'm one that typically will, will pick one passage and just try to pull out of that one passage whatever we can get and apply that specifically to our situations. Well, this morning, uh, I don't have time to go through the entire book of Job, but I do ask that you have your Bible open to the book of Job. If you don't know where that is, go to the Psalms right in the middle of your Bible, and then move to the left, and Job comes right before the Psalms. We'll start in chapter 1, and we'll kind of jump around. You have an uh, outline on the back of your worship guide if you want to try to follow along. I have some other passages as well. We'll just see where we end up this morning. I've got a lot of references written down here, and um, so be ready to flip some pages. So a couple of pastors, John Calvin was one who actually preached through the entire book of Job. It took him 159 sermons and a little over six months. If you're doing math in your head, you're trying to figure out how that worked. Well, actually in his town where he served as a pastor, they used to have weekday preaching, weekday sermons. So not only did he preach on the weekends, I think he preached two or three sermons on the weekends. He also preached every weekday during the lunch hour. So take your lunch break, you go to church, you hear a sermon, you go back to work. And he would do that every weekday. And so Job was one of those books that he preached every day of the week. Um, I actually wouldn't mind that kind of ministry. I just don't know if anybody would ever show up. So, um, uh, But that's what he did, preaching through the book of Job, 159 sermons. Another pastor in London after the time of John Calvin, by the name of Joseph Carroll, uh, Carroll with a Y, C-A-R-Y-L, if you want to go look this up, actually preached through Job for 23 years. 23 years in one book, the book of Job. Imagine if you were um, one, of, one of someone in his church, and you went away at one point, and then you came back after 20 years. Sometimes that happens, right? You leave, you go out of town, you come back 20 years later to the same church, and there he is, preaching in Job. And you say to someone, wow, he's preaching this again. He was preaching that last time I was here. No, he's still in Job. <laughs> he didn't come back to it. He's still in it. Um, his congregation, actually, it's reported that his congregation dwindled during that time. So I wonder why. That's not my goal. My goal is to get through this book today. But I do want to acknowledge there's a lot in here. A lot in here. And so this might leave you with some questions, but my goal this morning is to give you kind of the big picture, the overall theme and story of the book of Job, and then how that actually does point us to Jesus as the one who is really um, asked for and longed for in the book of Job, 
but also how Jesus is the fulfillment um, and the perfect picture of what we see in this book. I had lunch with someone this past week who uh, told me about, kind of shared part of their testimony with me. He said when he first came to Christ, he didn't grow up in a, a Christian home. He came to Christ about 20 years of age, and he did everything he could to serve the Lord. He was excited. He wanted to serve the Lord. He, he wanted to be a good husband, a good father. He worked hard. He, he worked with his hands. He was a hard labor kind of guy. And he made sure to take his family to church every Sunday. Well, one summer specifically, he lost almost everything. He worked in, in a, I'm trying to be a little bit um, uh, elusive here, uh, uh, you know, trying not to give away. Um, but his work depended on uh, sun and rain and weather. And one summer, the weather just did not work out for him. And he ended up losing a lot. And his question was, Lord, why? I've been faithful. I've served you. I've done everything I can to be the good Christian guy I'm supposed to be. To be a good husband. To, to be a good father. Go to church. Why? Why, God? And that's a question that maybe all of us have asked from time to time about ourselves or about someone we know. Why, why this suffering? It doesn't seem to make sense. And that actually comes from a foundational belief that God works in a retributive way. What do I mean by that? It means he rewards your good works and he punishes your bad. And, and our suffering comes as a result of Something had to have happened in our lives. We must have done something. This same theology is found in Africa, in the villages of Africa. My father-in-law, my mother-in-law were, were missionaries there for a while. And if someone in your family died, if there was no rain, they have to go through and interview in detail who did something to upset the gods. And they will kill people if they think they're guilty of this. That's retributive theology. That's something I call karma theology. What comes around goes around, right? Do for God and he'll do for you. But that's not the picture of God that the Bible gives us. A lot of us have that kind of theology, or we've grown up with that kind of theology. Churches in this town will preach that kind of theology. But that's not how God works. Sometimes we don't know why things happen the way they do. Job didn't know why things were happening to him, and that's what we're going to see as we come to this book. But what we can learn from Job, his story, and from this book is that we can face suffering when we know that God is sovereign and he is merciful. We can face suffering, we can trust God when we know that he is sovereign and he is merciful and he is good. So we're going to just try to walk through the book of Job. Let me start by going to chapter 1. Right at the first verse, it says this, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then skip down to verse 6, where we'll get into kind of the, the main theme of what happens in Job's life. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, or the Satan, the accuser, 
also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, Job's well off. He's got everything he needs. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Take away everything from him, and then he'll curse you, Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So what we see in this first introduction to the book of Job. So you've got Job, who the Bible describes as a righteous man, an upright man who fears the Lord. Another understanding of fearing the Lord is that you trust him, you, you revere him, you worship him, you believe he is who he is. He is God, good and in control and completely sovereign. So Job is a, a man of faith. He believes the Lord, and that belief makes him an upright man. It makes him a righteous man in the world. And he's wealthy. He's well off. That's what Satan says in this passage. And so we get this picture of, and again, we can't get into all the details. People have written books and books and books and volumes and pages and pages about you know, what's going on in this council of the sons of the gods? What is that all about? Well, I'm just not going to go there today, okay? Um, but what's going on? It says, Satan's there, and the Lord says to Satan, what are you up to? Accuser? Where do you come from? And Satan answered, I've been going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down. I've been doing some surveying, Lord. I've been doing, I've been looking around. And notice who brings up Job. It's not Satan. God, the Lord, Yahweh, in this passage, says, I know what you're up to. Have you considered my servant Job? He's a man who's upright. God's the one that puts Job in the story first. What? What are you doing? And it's not any kind of because Job deserves this, right? No, God's in control. He's sovereign. But for whatever reason, he's going to allow suffering in Job's life. We'll get to what we think that reason is in a little bit. And so Satan says, well, of course he fears you, Lord. Look at his life. He's got everything together. He's got, he's got everything you could ask for. Kids, wealth, property, prosperity. He's got it all. You take all that away, and then he'll curse you. And so the Lord says, okay, go for it. But don't touch him. And so in this first passage, what happens is Satan goes after everything that Job has. He takes his servants. He takes his kids. 15 children, all dead. 
He takes all his property, all his wealth. And, the, and Job still did not curse the Lord. Look at verses 20 and 21 in chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So he takes away all of his wealth, all of his prosperity, and he still trusts the Lord. And then God comes back. Similar situation. It says there, you know, there's this gathering again. Satan comes again. What have you been up to? I've been doing my surveys again. And again, look at verse 3. The Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Notice that, without reason. There's no reason that the Lord should destroy Job. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and then he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Now, this is a story maybe we're familiar with. We can gloss over a section like that, those two verses, But imagine how miserable Job is right now. He's covered from head to foot in these itching, oozing, painful sores. The only kind of relief he can find is to take broken pottery, broken pieces of clay, and scrape his skin with them. He's miserable. He's suffering, and he's covering himself in ashes. I don't know if this was some kind of medical, like, uh, you know, old-timey calamine lotion or something to try to dry up the sores, but he's miserable. And look at what his wife says to him. Verse 9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Another way to understand integrity is your, your genuineness, your faith. Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And then again it says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. In all of this, he still did not curse God, did not blame God, but he demonstrates faith, he demonstrates trusting God's will no matter what's going on. He doesn't know. We're going to find out the rest of this book. He doesn't know what's going on or why this is happening. But he's trusting God regardless. In chapter 3, we get an honest prayer from Job. What is his initial reaction to this whole situation? He says this, After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Skip down to verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come out from the womb and expire? 
Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and be quiet, I would have slept, and then I would have been at rest. What is Job saying? I wish that I had never been born. It's too hard, God. This is terrible. I wish I had never been born. I wish I hadn't survived delivery. That's an honest prayer, isn't it? That's honestly admitting, God, this is hard. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before or prayed that kind of prayer. Some of us in this room maybe are thinking, can we really pray that? But it's still, at the end of the book, it actually says, in everything that Job said, he was right. In other words, this, his faith is able to acknowledge on one hand, God is completely good, he is completely in control, he is completely sovereign, but then on the other hand, this is really hard. And I don't know what you're up to, and it's so difficult... I wish I didn't even exist on this earth to have to face this. You know, this picture of Job suffering, this honest prayer brought to my mind immediately another person who prayed in his suffering. Jesus in the garden. What did he say? Lord, this is more than I can bear. Take this cup away from me. If there's any other way, Lord, let that be. But not my will, but yours be done. See, what we see in this first section is Job's suffering and how even in Job's suffering, he entrusts himself to a good and sovereign God. And he doesn't know all the reasons for his suffering. Jesus actually knew the reasons for his suffering, didn't he? And he still went through it. Job submits himself to the Lord's will, even in his suffering. And so what can we learn from this first point? Well, one of the things we can learn from this first point is that when we suffer, we can know, just like in this passage, that the Lord is not caught off guard. We might not know the reason for that suffering, but we can know that God, in the end, knows what he's doing, and we can trust him with that, as difficult as it is. But then the other thing we know, because of the New Testament, and because we're shown this throughout the Bible, is that when we suffer, we're actually, if we respond to that suffering like Job did, like Jesus did, with faith and submission to God's will, we learn that he's actually making us more like Christ. What's the greatest thing that anything could happen to us? That we would be more like Jesus. And suffering actually does that in our lives. It makes us more like Jesus. We identify with him in his sufferings, but then as we go through that and make it out on the other side, we are like Jesus in our, in our joy, in our satisfaction, finding all fulfillment in him and in the Lord, he's making us more like Christ. It's not pretty. <laughs> okay, I don't want you to get this like glamorous view. Oh, good, he's making more like Jesus. Then I can do it. No, it's not pretty. It's hard, but it is good. As difficult as it is, it is good for us. 
And it's a blessing. And what I'm not saying is that suffering, if you've suffered through it, then he will bless you on the other side. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the suffering is the blessing. That doesn't seem to make sense in our logic, does it? But he's actually using that to help us grow. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Paul? Rejoice in our sufferings? Why? Because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What does Paul say? In our sufferings, God pours his love out on us. He shows us in our sufferings how his love can satisfy and bring us through any and every situation. And so we rejoice in our sufferings. Romans 12, 12, a few chapters later, says this, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. That's a picture of Job, isn't it? A picture of Job and a picture of Jesus. He rejoiced in hope, he was patient in tribulation, and he continued in prayer. Job 13, later on in this book, Job would actually say, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he cut me down, though he knock me down, though he kill me and cause me to suffer, I will still hope in him. So the first thing we get is that in Job's suffering, just like Jesus, he trusts that God's will is good, even if he doesn't know the answer. Now, the second thing we see uh, that I want to point out to you from the book of Job is this conversation that he has with his friends. Now, this is the main part of the book, and there's no way that I can get through all of these chapters for the next 35 chapters or so. And so I just want to try to capture, you can go back and read this for yourself, but try to capture some of what's going on in this conversation. First of all, look at verse uh, chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, starting at verse 11, just kind of set the scene. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each to his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Again, that kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Unable to recognize him because of all the suffering and physical uh, harm that had been done. So they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now let me just stop and say, that's the best thing his friends did the whole book. They sat with him, and they just were sad with him. Okay? That's the best thing. So if you, have, if you ever have a friend that's suffering, just sit with them and be sad with them. God himself will say, when they opened their mouth, that's when things started going bad. Sit with them, be sad with them. 
And, and so I really, I'm one of those, now there, you can read all kind of commentators on this, listen to all kind of sermons on this. I'm one of those that I, I'm really, I'm going to give the friends a break here. I really think they're good friends. And they just have some really messed up theology at times. But how many of you have sat with a friend for seven days and seven nights when they're suffering? That's commitment, isn't it? That, I mean, that takes, you know, that's, that takes some willingness to sit with somebody, to give up a whole week to sit with them in their sadness. So let's give the friends a little break here, right? They're good friends, and they are his friends. And so they sit with them. But then the next part of the book is uh, this ongoing conversation. And I know if you've ever tried to read through the book of Job, it's hard, all right? And so I want to try to give you a picture that maybe would make it easier. This is whenever I get to uh, this part of my Bible reading, this is, what, this is the image that God brings to my mind, okay? Uh, what we find out later on that there's another guy there. So picture five guys sitting around a fire pit, and they're having a conversation. And what, what happens in that conversation is they're, they're kind of going back and forth, right? So what happens in this passage, in this book, is you've got these three friends, and what will happen is Job will talk, and then a friend will talk, and then Job will respond to that friend. And then Job will talk again, another friend will talk, and Job will respond to that friend. And then Job again will talk, and then the other friend, the third friend will respond, and Job will respond to that friend. And that happens three times. It, it's, it's a pattern, it's a cycle. That's how the whole book works out. So maybe that'll help you. So Picture these guys around a fire, and I don't know, guys, uh, girls, I'm sure y'all sit around fire sometimes too um, and talk, but picture a group of guys sitting around a fire for about three hours or so. If someone, we've done this before with some of the church guys, if someone were to write down everything we said, it would be a lot longer than the book of Job. Okay? So this is just a conversation with friends. Maybe that'll make it a little easier for you to take in, all right? Um, and it is, it's written in poetic, sort of a drama, dramatic type of form. So what, what happens in this conversation? There's two main themes that I want to point out to you from these conversations. The first is what, jo what Job's friends are saying, and then there's what Job is saying. And what Job's friends are saying is, basically, Job, we love you. We know you serve God. We know God is good. We know God is just. Um, so you must have done something. The, what is it? Like, what did you do that would cause God to cause all this suffering in your life? What did you do? You see, they're coming back to that karma theology, aren't they? They're coming back to that retributive theology that says God rewards people who do good and he punishes people who do bad. And that's basically their theology. Even in love to their friend, they've just got bad theology, right? And so they're, they're in friendship. They're trying to help Job figure out, you know, what did you do so we can help you clean that up so God will, you know, take it easy on you. But they're wrong. We're going to find out that they're wrong at the end of the book. They're wrong. Their assumption is wrong. Their theology is bad, okay? But then there's what Job seems to, to teach and say in response. First of all, he's, he, every accusation of something that they say he's done, he responds with, no, I, I can't think of anything. 
My conscience is clear. Like, I, I, I can't think of any way that God would be looking to punish me. Like, yes, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm, I'm human. But there's no specific thing that I can think that would cause God to bring this suffering in my life. And so then he's crying out, Lord, give me something. Answer me. Give me some reason for this. Help me to understand what's going on. So Job, he, he has good theology. He actually is influenced by his friends by the end of the book, and he starts turning back. You know, maybe you're all right. Maybe there is something I've done. Um, you know, and then he's crying out to God for some sort of answer. But throughout his pleas, he brings up this theme. He brings up this theme, and his theme is this. I wish there was some kind of mediator between me and God. Someone who could speak on my account and someone who could speak on God's account and make it clear what he really wants to make known to me. I wish there was some kind of mediator to go between us so that I would have all the answers. Who is that mediator? It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? It, it, Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Job is crying out for and pleading for and longing for is finally answered probably 2,000 years later in the person of Jesus. It's a long time to wait, but for those on this side of the gospel, on this side of the New Testament, we don't have to have the same exact response that Job has because we know God is good. We know what God is up to because he's shown us in his own son, Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. He goes between us and God. Now, at the end of the friend's conversation, we find out that there's this other guy there, and we could call him a kid. I don't know how old he is, but there's this guy by the name of Elihu. If you flip to um, Job 32, I want to look at a couple things that Elihu says. Um, again, commentators, pastors will uh, kind of debate. Is Elihu, does Elihu, is he, is he speaking well? You know, is he uh, just along with the friends? Um, what, what's the Elihu's deal? And people will come on on both ends. I'm, again, um, I come out on the end that I really like Elihu. I like what he says, and I think he's a good friend to Job. I think he's also humble. Um, he's, he's waited patiently. That was probably a cultural thing, but he's waited patiently to speak his word because he's the youngest. Look at ver, uh, verse 1 of chapter 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had not found an answer, although they had declared to Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. Elihu, is, <laughs> he's been patiently waiting, right? 
I, I think I like Elihu because he reminds me a little bit of me. You know, I, I have this tendency to sit back quiet and listen to conversation and kind of put my piece in at the end. It's not a healthy pattern, um, but, but that's kind of what Elihu does here. Um, but what does he say? He's angry. Why is he angry? He's angry because he's not satisfied with what the friends have said, this whole retributive theology, right, that they haven't been able to give Job an answer. But also he's angry with Job. Why is he angry with Job? Because towards the end of Job's reasoning, he seems to be justifying himself, speaking on his own account, rather than speaking with God. And what will happen is after Elihu speaks, God will finally speak. And a lot of what God says seems to be in line with what Elihu says. At one point, he actually quotes Elihu. That's why I think Elihu, that's why I like what he says. Okay? Um, but what does Elihu say? Look at chapter 33. I'm going to start at verse, uh, there's a lot here I want to say, but I'm going to start at verse 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed, 33 verse 19, and with continual strife in, strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. He's kind of describing Job's suffering here, okay? Man suffers, but then, verse 21, his, fl his flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be an angel, another way you could say angel is a messenger. If there be a messenger, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to men what is right for him, and if he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. This is Elihu speaking to Job, and I don't, I don't think Elihu actually knows what he's saying here, because he's speaking some gospel truth, and he has no idea who Jesus is at this point. But what is he praying to God for? He's praying that God would send a messenger, a mediator out of heaven, that would redeem Job and all those who are suffering out of the pit, Restore to them youthful vigor, energy, fresh skin. Give them new life and resurrection. And that he would forgive all of his sins and be one that gives light. That his life should look on the light. If that's not describing Jesus, I don't know what is. <laughs> because Jesus actually said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks with me will never walk in darkness, but his life, but he shall see the light of life. Jesus is the light that Elihu was praying for and didn't even know it. And so what do we see from Job's friends? Well, we see some bad theology, but we see ultimately this plea that God would send someone as a mediator to redeem and to heal and to deliver Job 
And that's exactly what he did for us 2,000 years later in the person of Jesus. And then the last thing we see from the book of Job is Job's God. That Job's God is sovereign and merciful. Go flip over to chapter 38. Um, I should have warned you, yes, this is going to be a longer sermon. We're preaching a whole book of the Bible, people. Okay? Um, but we're almost there. Um, Job 38 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... So, so, you know, a lot of pastors will say, God finally answers, right? Um, and maybe, maybe this did take a long time, because if you're reading through your Bible and you feel like, man, this is a long book, God finally answers. We don't know if this was like seven days after Job's suffering or seven months or seven years. We don't know. But, but God answers Job in his mercy, and he says this, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Whoo, that's scary. <laughs> God is saying to Job, all right, it's time for you to man up. I'm going to ask you some questions. You've been, answering, you've been asking all me these questions. It's time for you to listen to some of my questions. And what does he say? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said... Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God is saying, who, who made all of this? Who made the earth and the seas? Later on, he'll say, who, who helps the deer give birth? Who helps uh, you know, these giant beasts live on earth? All of these things were put in place by me, for me, for my glory. Who, who are you and where were you? So Job, what is God doing? I know this can kind of seem kind of harsh, right? Job's suffering and God's like, look at me. Look at who I am. But what's actually going on? God is saying, Job, I know what I'm doing. I'm in control. I made everything. I am completely sovereign. You can trust me. You can trust me. I know it might not make sense, but I'm God, and you can trust me. So God is sovereign. We see that in verse, uh, verses 1 through 11. But then later on in chapter 42, we see God's mercy, that God is also full of mercy. Job's response to this long questioning is in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." 
Job's response to the glory of the Lord on display is the only appropriate response we should have when we're confronted with a holy God. It's humility and repentance. Even if there's no specific thing that we can think of in the moment to repent of, just the fact that God is God and we are not means he deserves our reverence. And that's what Job is confronted with. This is a holy, perfect, all-knowing, all-wise, all-good God, and I've questioned him. I've questioned his goodness. I repent. I'm humbled. Lord, I trust you. I had heard about you, but now I see. Now I really understand, and I believe. And so Job is merciful to Job. He forgives, or God is merciful to Job. He forgives him, but he's also merciful to the friends. Look at verse 7. I, I just love this. I don't know why. Like, I've read the book of Job. I've heard a lot of people talk about the book of Job. I've heard a lot of people hate on Job's friends. But for whatever reason, people don't look at this passage. I just love this. It says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. Eliphaz was probably the oldest. That's why he spoke first, too, and why he's spoken, too. For you have not spoken of me what is right. Notice also that Elihu is not included in this. That's also why I think Elihu um, has some wisdom to share. Uh, you have not spoken what is right, as my servant Job has. So God says, Job has spoken what is right, but you have not. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my, Job, my servant Job has." So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. What's going on here? God is showing mercy to these friends who have steered Job wrong at points, but what's happening? God is saying, I will forgive you, but that's going to happen as Job intercedes for you. And Job, even though he had been wronged by his friend, prays for his friends, and God forgives and has mercy on them because of Job's prayer for them. Isn't that what Jesus does for us? Jesus said, I have called you my friends. I no longer call you servants. You're my friends. In, Job, in John 17, Jesus prays for the church. He prays for us. He prays for us. And at one point in his ministry, he says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. You remember that, that Job guy? Well, Satan's asked if he could do that to you, Peter. But I have prayed for you. Jesus prays for his friends. And Jesus, as our mediator, as our intercessor, comes between God and man. And he brings the mercy of God on us because Jesus is a friend for sinners. He's a friend to sinners, and he's a good friend. He's a good friend. And then the last thing we see in the book of Job is God's mercy to Job. He restores, it says he restores everything back to Job. Now, a lot of people read this and they say, see, if you just suffer through, God will reward you in the end. He's got, he's got more in store for you. And people, stop. 
just stop. That's not what this is teaching us. Yes, we have an eternal reward ahead of us in heaven. God doesn't promise us earthly goods if we suffer here on earth. He promises the opposite, actually. So what's going on? God is merciful. Job didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve this reward. How do we know that? Because he didn't deserve the punishment. This is not retributive theology. This is God forgiving Job and then granting Job extra mercy and grace. And why did all this happen? Well, it happened for God's glory. Because what we learn about God is that, yes, even in the worst situations, He is sovereign and He is in control. Even in the worst of our suffering, He is sovereign. And when believers in God rejoice and give glory to God, even in the midst of terrible suffering, that brings glory to God too. I don't know if you've ever witnessed this in people's lives. People, believers who, who really suffer, who are still filled with all kind of joy. And it amazes you. And you say, how could someone with all this going on in their life, how can they still have so much joy? And what does that do? It brings glory to God, doesn't it? brings glory to God. And when God brings someone through, it brings glory to God. And when someone suffers all the way up to the point of death and they're never healed, they face painful agony, physical suffering all their life until death. But then at their funeral, you can say, this person is free. They're not suffering anymore. It brings glory to God, doesn't it? And so, yes, even our suffering, God intends for good and for his glory. We learn that from Job, we learn that from Jesus, and we can learn that in our own life. Romans 11, 33 through 36 says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And then Paul actually quotes Elihu and God out of Job. He says, who has given a gift to the Lord that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is saying, who can actually know the mind of the Lord? There will be moments in your life where you're just going to not know what God is up to. But glory be to God. Glory be to God. So let me just close with these questions for you. Do you have a difficult marriage? Are you suffering in marriage and you don't know why? Are you asking, Lord, why is my marriage suffering? Well, I don't know. But God knows, and God is good, and you can trust Him. Lord, why are my kids, why have they rebelled against us? Why have they gone off, and why are they wayward? God, why? Well, I don't know. But God knows, and he's good, and you can trust him. God, why, why this trauma in my past? Why did you allow that to happen? Well, I don't know. But God knows, and he's good, and you can trust him. 
Why the unexpected loss of this friend or this family member? Why this terrible diagnosis, this terminal illness? Why this job loss, God? Why, why, why? I don't know. But God knows, and he's good, and you can trust him. Everything God does, it's for our good, and it's for his glory. And you can trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, even when it's so hard, we want to acknowledge that you love us. We know you love us because you showed us that in your own son, Jesus Christ. You proved your love to us by sending your son to die for us, to suffer for us. And now we have a faithful high priest who knows our sufferings that we can go to in every situation. So, Lord, when we don't know all the answers, help us to know that you do and that you are good and that you're in control and that we can trust you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.